You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Hello, this is Matt from the Explorers Podcast. I want to invite you to join me on the voyages and journeys of the most famous explorers in the history of the world. These are the thrilling and captivating stories of Magellan, Shackleton, Lewis and Clark, and so many other famous and not-so-famous adventures from throughout history. Go to explorerspodcast.com or just look us up on your podcast app. That's the Explorers Podcast. Hello, everyone. My name is Wesley Levesay from the History of the Second World War podcast. Join me on a journey through the most destructive conflict in human history, a journey that will take us not just through the famous campaigns and cataclysmic battles, but also to the lesser well-known corners of the war that touched millions all over the world, as we try and answer not just the questions of what and where, but how and why. You can find History of the Second World War on all major podcast platforms or at historyofthesecondworldwar.com. Welcome to the Age of Napoleon. Episode 19, The Principles of Mountain Warfare. Thanks for joining me. At the end of last episode, I promised we'd be talking about Napoleon's romantic life this time. Well, it turns out I had a lot more to say before we get there, so that topic is postponed for the immediate future. Sorry if you were looking forward to that, I assure you, it is coming. Instead, we'll be focusing entirely on Napoleon's time with the Army of Italy in the spring and summer of 1794. A lot of Napoleon biographies kind of gloss over this period, which I think is a mistake. As some of you already know, Napoleon first rose to international fame as commander of the Army of Italy, fighting a remarkable campaign through northern Italy in 1796 and 1797. We're still a ways off from that in our story, but I see many of the roots of those victories here in this period of time, so I think it's fruitful to talk about it a little. Think of it as foreshadowing. So, we left off last time at the end of 1793. Napoleon was in the port city of Toulon in southern France, freshly captured by Republican forces. During the siege of the city, he had realized the dreams of martial glory he'd held since childhood. As chief of artillery, Napoleon had been instrumental. He'd whipped his command into shape and turned it into a fearsome tool for siege warfare. He'd also designed the plan that ultimately led to victory. Like all young officers, Napoleon had spent the years of his training eagerly anticipating the day he would eventually be tested in battle. He'd been through a few fumbling amateur skirmishes in Corsica, but Toulon was the first real test of his mettle. And not only had he passed, he distinguished himself at every turn. We can only imagine how elated he must have felt to have that burden of anxiety and self-doubt lifted. And to put icing on the cake, this wasn't just a personal triumph. His fellow officers, the army top brass, and France's civilian leadership had all taken notice. When 1793 turned into 1794, there could be no doubt that Napoleon Bonaparte's star was on the rise. He was now a man of some reputation, a brigadier general at the age of just 24. Not a national celebrity by a long stretch, 
but soldiers and officers all over France were reading his name in official bulletins and in the army press. So were the Parisian intellectuals who gobbled up news from the front. Plenty of politicians noticed him too. By now, the representatives on mission in southern France knew him and looked on him favorably, as a man of ability, but also as an ideologically committed Jacobin loyalist, who was not afraid to get his hands dirty playing politics. For most of his life, Napoleon had struggled against his relatively humble, boring circumstances, always feeling like he was meant for bigger things. Now, after too long, he was finally in a position to claim that grander destiny. With the campaign against the Federalists winding down, many of the representatives on mission that had accompanied the army moved on to more important theaters of war. That included two of Napoleon's most important political patrons, Antoine Christophe Salicetti and Augustin Robespierre, younger brother of Maximilien, the de facto leader of France. Their new post was to the Army of Italy, which was engaged in a seesaw campaign against the Piedmontese and Austrians in the foothills of the Alps. They assured Napoleon they would take him along as soon as they could, and on February 7th, the order finally came down from Paris. Napoleon left immediately for the army's winter quarters in Nice. As a general, Napoleon was entitled to a small personal staff, so his young assistants, Junot and Marmont, came along too. Typically, Napoleon had not been idle in the months since the fall of Toulon. In anticipation of this new assignment, he'd spent the time studying the geography and disposition of forces, and reading histories of past campaigns in the region. He arrived in Nice with a fully formed plan for the next campaign season, a bit presumptuous when you keep in mind that there were officers in the Army of Italy who had been fighting in this part of the country for years, but that was Napoleon. The front line along the Alps had been stalemated for years, but with the fall of Toulon, it looked like that might be about to change. Many of the troops fighting in the siege had been pulled from the Army of Italy. Now they were returning. It had also sent political shockwaves through the whole region. Much to the shock and horror of the coalition powers, as news of the fall of Toulon spread, the cities of northern Italy erupted in joy. Poor urban workers and the liberal bourgeoisie put on tricolor cockades and liberty caps and sang and danced around bonfires in spontaneous celebrations of the Republic's victory. Perhaps more ominously for their kings and dukes, many of them formed political clubs modeled on the Jacobins. Within the cities, at least, there seemed to be a sizable population that was eager for change and believed it might come on the bayonets of the Republican armies. The main enemy in this theater of war was Piedmont, one of the largest and most powerful of the small states that divided Italy. Piedmont is in the northwest of the peninsula, with its capital at Turin. It was, and remains today, one of the wealthiest regions of Italy. The Duke of Piedmont, Victor Amadeus III, was also king of Sardinia, but on paper his two domains remained separate, each with its own laws, military, and administration. Piedmont was a superpower by Italian standards, 
but still a small, weak state compared to the great powers of Europe. The Piedmontese army had a few good units and competent officers, but they were a class below the larger, better-funded, more professional armies fielded by larger, more modern states. When Victor Amadeus joined the coalition against France, these deficiencies were soon laid bare. The Piedmontese asked for help from their nearest great power ally, the Austrians. The Habsburgs ruled over a large slice of northern Italy to the east of Piedmont. They considered areas outside their direct control part of their sphere of influence, Austria's backyard, which they had the right to dominate politically. The Piedmontese had their own ambitions for greater influence in northern Italy, which sometimes brought them into conflict with the Habsburgs. Indeed, Piedmont and Austria would fight wars over these issues later, in the 19th century. But for now, they were willing to put aside those differences in the name of their shared interest, keeping the French out of Italy. The enemy of my enemy is my friend. The Austrians sent a small army to reinforce the Piedmontese. However, they were wary allies, which is a pattern we'll see a lot of during these coalition wars that the French would repeatedly exploit. Generally speaking, Piedmont was on the east side of the Alps, France was on the west side. In practice, the border was much, much messier, based on feudal inheritances dating back centuries that didn't conform to logic or even to basic geography. There were pockets of territory on the French side of the Alps that were part of Piedmont. This gave the coalition a huge advantage. The only way to move troops across the Alps was through narrow mountain passes, where the terrain made it possible for a small force of defenders to hold off an army many times their size. Think of the 300 Spartans at Thermopylae. But with these enclaves on the far side of the Alps, there were a few places at which the coalition controlled both sides of a pass, and so could move troops from one side of the mountains to the other at will. With France hard-pressed on all sides, it was of paramount strategic importance to the Republic to eliminate these Piedmontese footholds on the western side of the Alps, and seal off all the passes. This was what the Army of Italy had been fighting to achieve since 1792. Republican forces had performed reasonably well in this theater of the war. They hadn't melted down at the outbreak of the war, the way the French armies along the Belgian border did before the Battle of Valmy. However, every time they gained momentum and seemed close to achieving their goal, the Austrians and Piedmontese managed to regroup, hold them off, and counterattack, until they were stopped by the French in turn. The terrain in this part of the world is ideal for military defense. Mountains, cliffs, and foothills interlaced with rivers and streams that carry melted snow down to the Mediterranean. It's rocky, hard to travel across open country, and the few roads tended to be narrow and indirect, which could slow an army down to a crawl. Farmers built walls around their land, and townspeople built their homes with thick stone walls. This had been a border region for centuries, and the landscape was dotted with fortifications created by past rulers. So every few miles in the Alps, there is a strategic point that makes an ideal stronghold. 
No general on either side in 1792 and 1793 had found a way to get around this basic reality of the terrain. The result was stalemate. When Napoleon reported to the Army of Italy in 1794, it was coming off of a hard campaign season the previous year. The enemy was dug into a strong defensive position, centered on a fortified mountain village called Saorgio, and extending across a string of fortified mountaintops and ridgelines, in an arc about 70 kilometers or 43 miles long. The Army of Italy had attempted a frontal assault on Saorgio the previous summer. The result was disaster. The Republicans lost nearly 1,500 men killed or wounded, compared to only a handful for the coalition. When the experienced soldiers in the first assault fell back in disorder, the inexperienced, willful volunteer units panicked, and the whole army fled the field. The army spent the winter in Nice, licking its wounds. Meanwhile, the Austrians and the Piedmontese only grew more deeply ensconced up on the high ground around Saorgio. Just like at Toulon, it looked like this would be a long, bloody campaign. The two sides would take turns slugging away at each other's strong defensive positions, with the winner being whoever could persevere and wear down the enemy. But, just like at Toulon, Napoleon believed he had thought of a shortcut out of this deadly grind. Despite the punishing terrain, French armies had fought successful offensive campaigns in this part of the world in the recent past. Napoleon looked to their example for inspiration. He had been studying a book called The Principles of Mountain Warfare by General Pierre-Joseph Bourset. This was a totally obscure text, never even published, only available through the French army's archives. But Napoleon had encountered it during his student days, and it contained valuable insights. Bourset was a sharp strategic thinker, and knew the Alps better than maybe any other soldier in the 18th century. He had served as chief of engineers for this region, and had led a mission to survey the border with Piedmont. During the War of the Austrian Succession in the 1740s, France found itself allied to Frederick the Great of Prussia, and Piedmont to his Austrian opponents, effectively a preview of the situation in Italy during the War of the First Coalition. Bourset was chosen to plan a French offensive into Piedmont. Following Bourset's strategy, the French fought their way over the mountains and captured the Piedmontese heartland in a year. By the standards of a pre-revolutionary army, this was practically a blitzkrieg, and through some of the toughest defensive terrain in Europe. Bourset's book, The Principles of Mountain Warfare, is exactly what it sounds like, general observations about fighting in rough alpine country, tied to specific examples from his wartime experience. Just like Napoleon, Bourset favored aggressive, offensive tactics. He believed that, if it was used right, mountainous territory actually offered some unique advantages to the attacker. Common wisdom of the time was that any force assaulting a tough position concentrate as many troops as possible to overpower the enemy with numbers. Bourset advocated the opposite. An attacker should divide his army up and come at the enemy from multiple directions. Rough alpine terrain could be used to mask the army's movements and make it easy for commanders to hide their numbers. 
If a general began an offensive campaign through the mountains by splitting his force up and sending them towards the enemy along different routes, his opponent would soon begin to receive seemingly contradictory reports of the enemy army approaching from several directions. With the attackers on the march, the defending army would need to begin concentrating its own forces for the coming battle, or risk facing the offensive with only a small part of their force. But with all of these conflicting reports, where to concentrate? Make the wrong choice, and you might find the attackers on your flank threatening to cut you off, leaving no choice but a retreat or a risky counterattack. With the defenders properly confused, unable to risk concentrating their forces, Bourset argued a fast-moving attacker could converge his divided forces and start hitting the enemy before they had a chance to consolidate. In theory, if executed properly, an attacker could destroy the enemy in detail, which is a technical military term for defeating a spread-out enemy force piece by piece, facing each enemy unit in a separate battle in which it has to fight alone, hopelessly outnumbered by the entire attacking army. Bourset repeatedly used this technique during the War of the Austrian Succession, and was often successful. He was never able to pull off the perfect battle and destroy the enemy in detail, but even when the Austrians and Piedmontese beat the French on the battlefield, they found themselves outmaneuvered, with some other French column advancing on their rear, and forced to fall back eBay Motors is here for the ride. Remember when you first saw the potential, and then through some elbow grease, fresh installs, and a whole lot of love, you transformed 100,000 miles and a body full of rust into a drive that's all your own. With over 122 million parts for your number one ride or die, you can make sure your ride stays running smoothly. Brake kits, LED headlights, exhaust kits, turbochargers, bumpers, whatever your baby needs, eBay Motors has it. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, it's guaranteed to fit your ride the first time, every time, or your money back. Plus, at these prices, you're burning rubber, not cash. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only, exclusions apply. After seeing the Republican troops in action, Napoleon believed they could surpass the army of the 1740s using these tactics. The soldiers of the Revolution were unruly and undisciplined but their morale was high, they traveled light, and could be trusted to operate independently without deserting at the first opportunity. Bourset's tactics relied on speed. The faster the army, the more likely it would be to catch the enemy off guard, and the more men it would be able to concentrate for those quick surprise battles. The coalition lines around Saorgio ran roughly east-west, in an arc almost parallel to the Mediterranean. The Army of Italy was to the south along the coast. Since the Republican frontal assaults the previous summer had failed, the obvious move for the French would be to attempt to hook around the eastern flank of the position, threatening the lines of communication, reinforcement, and supply back to Italy. The French had learned the last summer that a simple frontal assault was inadvisable, and around the western flank, they would only find more mountains, and no easy way to threaten the enemy position. A thrust to the east was the only feasible option, and both sides knew it. Napoleon's plan was to give the coalition exactly what they were expecting. 
Under his plan, the Army of Italy would split into two unequal contingents. The campaign would begin with the smaller of the two making the expected advance on the eastern flank. Then, the main body of the army would begin probing the center of the coalition line around Saorgio. The Austrians and Piedmontese were spread out thin along that long line. They held good positions, but they didn't have enough men to keep all of them properly manned at once. This wasn't a problem if they could guess where the French would attack and reinforce that area. Napoleon believed that by attacking from two different directions and moving quickly and taking care to hide his movements, the Republicans could prevent them from concentrating their forces until it was too late, and hit them when they were still spread out. It was a good plan, daring but realistic, and based on sound logic. It was also flexible. If the flanking maneuver succeeded, great. The enemy would be threatened from the rear while simultaneously being pressured from the front by the main force. If the coalition defeated the flanking maneuver, well, that was fine too, because to do that, they would have to pull troops from their main line, which would make it vulnerable to an assault from the main body of the Republican army. Unsurprisingly, Salicetti and Augustin Robespierre immediately endorsed the plan. Salicetti had invested a lot of effort and political capital in General Bonaparte's career, and by now, Napoleon and the younger Robespierre were personal friends, and Augustin was convinced his new buddy was a genuine military genius. They got no resistance from the commander of the Army of Italy, General Pierre Dumerbion. Dumerbion was an experienced officer. He'd been a colonel before the Revolution. He was quite competent, or at least had been at one time. When Napoleon arrived in Nice, Dumerbion was disengaged. The Army of Italy was effectively run by his subordinates, and by the representatives on mission. You sometimes see Dumerbion described as too elderly for command. In fact, he was only 57, a perfectly typical age for a general of his generation. However, he suffered from some mysterious medical condition that frequently left him bedridden. Perhaps more importantly, Dumerbion was thoroughly terrified by the terror, and who can blame him? As a former aristocrat and a career army officer, he had no doubt lost countless friends, colleagues, and relatives to the guillotine. Dumerbion's predecessor as commander of the Army of Italy, General Brunet, had lasted four months before being relieved of command, imprisoned, and guillotined for treason. Brunet's predecessor, General Biron, had lasted four months before being relieved of command, imprisoned, and guillotined for treason. When Napoleon arrived in Nice, Dumerbion had been in charge for six months. His strategy for outliving his predecessors seems to have been staying in bed as much as possible and giving the representatives on mission whatever they wanted. When Salicetti and Robespierre put Napoleon's plan in front of him, Dumerbion signed. Dumerbion's main objective in command was keeping his head attached to his body at all costs. This wasn't without good reason, but the desire for self-preservation seems to have superseded all other considerations, including any sense of duty he may have felt towards his men or to the cause. Fortunately for the army and for the Republic, Dumerbion had capable subordinates who took charge and picked up the slack. 
The most important of these was a young ex-sailor from Nice, Lieutenant General André Massena. Like Napoleon, Massena was part of that elite group of young soldiers who had risen from obscurity to the rank of general during the early years of the War of the First Coalition. He was a bit different from the rest, slightly older at a whopping 35, and came from an impoverished background. He was sent away from home to work as a cabin boy on a merchant ship at the tender age of 13. At 17, he joined the army. Like most people from Nice at this time, Massena was culturally an Italian, so he qualified to serve in the Royal Italian Regiment, an elite infantry unit where his uncle was sergeant major. Under his uncle's guidance, Massena quickly distinguished himself and achieved rapid promotion. As an old man, Massena said none of his achievements gave him as much trouble or as much pleasure as that first promotion from private to corporal. Within two years, he'd made sergeant. His colonel told the officers of the regiment that Sergeant Massena outshone all of them on maneuvers, but this was the king's army, and a poor son of a tanner could never rise above that rank. Massena liked the army, and toiled away as a sergeant for 14 years. But he was an ambitious man, and the inability to advance always grated on him. In 1789, he finally resigned to seek his fortune elsewhere. His timing was not great. The economy was in shambles, and Massena's only professional skills were those of a soldier. So, he found work in a business where those skills were useful, smuggling. Before he learned to fight on that rough terrain on the Franco-Piedmontese border, Massena learned to use it to hide his shipments of black market olive oil. Business boomed, but Massena was a restless soul, and believe it or not, the smuggling trade was not very exciting. The black market was more or less tolerated by society at large, and the government had more important priorities at this time than trying to run down bootleg olive oil. When the revolutionaries abolished feudal privilege, Massena's military ambitions were rekindled. He re-enlisted in 1791, now free to rise as far as fortune and ability would take him. Within a year, he made colonel. Massena never attended a military academy. His only formal education was the regimental school when he was with the Royal Italians. This was a kind of night school open to the soldiers of the regiment that taught basic literacy, math, and military subjects, the types of basic skills men might need if they hoped to be promoted to sergeant. Massena didn't achieve an officer's rank until after the revolution. He didn't have noble blood or political connections. His rise to general came purely by his own talents, and from luck. Massena was a remarkable soldier quick-thinking, tough, and personally brave. He was absolutely relentless on the attack, and implacably stubborn on the defense. When his commanders gave him an objective, they could be assured he would achieve it by any means, at any cost. Like Napoleon, he had an immediate intuitive grasp of the capabilities of the new type of army created by the revolution. He knew what these revolutionary citizen soldiers could do, and more importantly, saw the implications on tactics and strategy. Massena had boundless energy, which he turned to unflinching attention to detail, another characteristic he shared with Bonaparte. Napoleon considered him one of France's finest generals, 
and most contemporaries and modern historians agree. Here's how Napoleon described him, quote, Masséna was at his best and most brilliant in the middle of the fire and disorder of battle. The roar of cannon cleared his mind, gave him insight, perception, and joy. In the middle of the dead and dying, among the hail of bullets which swept all around him, Masséna was always giving his orders and making his dispositions with the greatest calmness and good judgment. There you see true nobility. End quote. For his service to the empire, Napoleon would make him a marshal and grant him the title Prince of Essling. Masséna had fought at the Siege of Toulon as well, and performed well enough that he secured promotion from brigadier general to lieutenant general. This is where his path first crossed with Napoleon's, but they were active on different parts of the line and had little contact. The campaign in the Alps in 1794 would be their first time truly working together. Masséna was immediately on board with Napoleon's plan for a quick, two-pronged offensive. This was just his style, aggressive, smart, audacious, and it made good use of the mountainous terrain he knew so well from his smuggling days. Masséna was chosen to lead the first thrust of the offensive, the attack on the coalition's eastern flank that would draw their forces away from Saorgio and threaten their rear. The offensive began on April 6, 1794. Masséna and his men marched east along the coast, easily dispersing the small Piedmontese garrisons in the area. They moved fast and pushed aside everything the Piedmontese threw at them. By the 17th of April, they were dangerously close to the rear of the coalition line. The Austrian commander pulled troops from the main defensive line to reinforce the eastern flank against Masséna, but cautiously, only a few thousand men. His position was in grave jeopardy on the eastern flank, but he was also getting reports of French activity directly in front of the army, so he couldn't risk pulling too many units from the line. This proved unwise. By the 24th of April, the main body of the Army of Italy made contact with the front of the now dangerously depleted coalition line. French and Austrian troops fought skirmishes along the front around Saorgio. The threat of these troops was enough to keep the coalition commanders from sending any more men to the rear to hold off the flanking force. Meanwhile, in the rear, Masséna's advance continued. By the 27th of April, he attacked the town of Briga. A strong Piedmontese force resisted, but were pushed out of the town after an intense battle. Masséna was now directly behind the coalition lines, only about 10 miles or 16 kilometers from Saorgio. Pressed on both sides, the coalition force was in imminent danger of encirclement or destruction. On April 28th, its commanders made the humiliating but ultimately correct decision to fall back over the Alps as quickly as possible, abandoning all Piedmontese territory on the west side of the mountains. The remaining coalition troops in Saorgio surrendered on April 29th. On May 8th, the Republicans took the Col de Tende, the last remaining mountain pass between France and Italy. Most of the coalition troops made it back to Piedmont but between three and 4,000 were caught on the wrong side of the mountains and taken prisoner, along with about 70 cannons and other supplies and equipment they'd been forced to leave behind. 
The Army of Italy had spent two years fighting to achieve this goal. Using Napoleon's plan, they had done it in just under a month. France had lost about 1,500 men, killed, wounded, or missing, compared to about 2,800 for the Austrians and Piedmontese. In theory, this was General Dumarbion's victory. But everyone in the French military knew he had never left his headquarters in Nice. As planner of the operation, Napoleon got some of the credit within the army, but he shared it with the man who was widely considered the hero of the offensive, André Massena, who had actually led most of the fighting. There wasn't much of a role for artillery in a quick mobile campaign over rough ground with no large battles. With France in control of the mountain passes, Republican strategy in the Alpine theater of war was at a crossroads. One option would be to pull men and resources out of the area. The passes could be held with a very small force, and there were other theaters of war in desperate need of reinforcement. Particularly the Pyrenees, only a few weeks' march away, where our old friend General Dugamier was hammering the Spanish. Things were going so well that some in the French leadership believed that with proper supplies and reinforcement, Dugamier could knock Spain out of the war entirely. Option B would be to push into Italy. With the Army of Italy holding the passes and its opponents battered, exhausted, and disorganized, conditions were favorable to continue the offensive. A successful advance into northern Italy could help France on other fronts by drawing away enemy resources. It probably won't surprise you to hear that Napoleon favored the latter course of action. He immediately began drawing up plans and pestering the war ministry with his recommendations. Napoleon advocated an offensive into Italy, not for its own sake, but as a way of striking at the Austrians. From one of his letters to the ministry, quote, Attacks must not be disseminated, but concentrated. It is Austria that must be annihilated. That accomplished, Spain and Italy will fall on their own. No dispassionate observer could think of taking Madrid. A defensive posture should be adopted on the Spanish front, and an offensive one on the Piedmontese. End quote. Almost everyone involved with the war, on both sides, believed the conflict between Austria and France would be decided on the main fronts of the war, the Low Countries and the Rhineland, the places where the two countries shared a border. But as we've already seen at Toulon and in the Alps, Napoleon's battlefield tactics often involved finding shortcuts, some weak point that could unravel the whole enemy position, or some maneuver to negate the enemy's advantage and force them to fight on his terms. He believed Italy could be this kind of shortcut on a strategic level, a way to attack Austria, France's main enemy, through the back door. After Saorgio, he managed to convince the Robespierres of this plan, but most of the army leadership remained skeptical, as did Lazar Carnot. The plan for an immediate offensive over the Alps was not adopted, but the Army of Italy wasn't broken up to reinforce Dugamier either. It simply held position while the politicians and staff officers debated. Want to learn how you can make smarter decisions with your money? Well, I've got the podcast for you. I'm Sean Piles, and I host NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast. On our show, we help listeners like you make the most of your finances— 
I sit down with NerdWallet's team of nerds, personal finance experts in credit cards, banking, investing, and more. We answer your real-world money questions and break down the latest personal finance news. The nerds will give you the clarity you need by cutting through the clutter and misinformation in today's world of personal finance. We don't promote get-rich-quick schemes or hype unrealistic side hustles. Instead, we offer practical knowledge that you can apply in your everyday life. You'll learn about strategies to help you build your wealth, invest wisely, shop for financial products, and plan for major life events. And you'll walk away with the confidence you need to ensure that your money is always working as hard as you are. So turn to the nerds to answer your real-world money questions and get insights that can help you make the smartest financial decisions for your life. Listen to NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast wherever you get your podcasts. While the Army of Italy waited, Napoleon received a special temporary assignment from the government. He would go to the city of Genoa, meet with officials from the French diplomatic mission in the city, and report back on the conditions he found there. Just as it had been during its golden age during the late medieval period, Genoa and the surrounding countryside was an independent city-state. Technically, it was a republic, but this was an oligarchy, ruled by a tiny clique of wealthy families. There was no sense of ideological solidarity between revolutionary France and La Superba, as the Genoese called their state. The Republic of Genoa was neutral in the current war, but vitally important to the French war effort. Although much reduced from its medieval peak, Genoa was still a major regional commercial center, including for grain, which came from as far away as Africa and Eastern Europe. France was still plagued by food shortages. With most of Europe at war with the Republic, the Genoese grain trade was one of the few lifelines available to bring more food into the country. Genoa was also a major financial center. France's own banking sector lagged behind many of her rivals, so the government often had to look abroad for access to credit and other financial services. Amsterdam, London, Antwerp, and Frankfurt were all closed to France due to the war, which made Genoa one of the precious few places the revolution could do its banking. It was of paramount importance to France that Genoa remain a place where French merchants and governments could do business. That meant keeping Genoa neutral and friendly, or, failing that, seizing the city by force as quickly and painlessly as possible so as not to scare off the bankers and businessmen. If France were to undertake a campaign in Italy, as Napoleon and the Robespierre brothers advocated, handling Genoa would be a major concern. And so, at the recommendation of Augustin Robespierre, Napoleon took leave of the army in mid-July to travel to La Superba. His mission was to report on the political situation within the city, France's diplomatic standing, and the Genoese military defenses, just in case the first two proved unfavorable. A lot of biographies of Napoleon call this a secret mission, which strikes me as a little melodramatic. He did take care to hide his true identity, especially the fact that he was a general in the Republican army. Remember, the French wanted to keep their relationship with Genoa friendly, and sending an artillery expert to scout the city's defenses doesn't sound terribly friendly. So yes, technically this was a secret mission, but there wasn't anything dangerous or cloak and dagger about it. It turned out to be a fairly unremarkable trip. There was little new information to report. 
Here's how Napoleon would later describe the situation in Genoa to Paris. Quote, the government of Genoa has more firmness and strength than we think. There are only two ways with it. Take Genoa by a quick surprise attack, but that is contrary to your intentions and to the rights of peoples. Or, rather, to live in good friendship and not try to get their money from them, which is the only thing they value. End quote. The only significant consequence of the mission to Genoa was to bring Napoleon closer to the Robespierres, who had sponsored the trip. They had trusted him with a mission of real political significance, and by doing their bidding, he was now firmly identified as a Robespierre partisan by his fellow revolutionaries. The timing could not have been worse. On August 5th, only a few days after Napoleon's return, an urgent bulletin arrived at army headquarters in Nice. Maximilien and Augustin Robespierre were dead, executed for treason, along with 21 of their closest allies in the convention. It was all undertaken according to the letter of the law, but everyone knew what was really going on. This was another coup d'etat. Robespierre and his allies were arrested on July 27, 1794, day nine in the month of Thermidor, year two, according to the new calendar decreed by the revolutionaries, which is why we refer to this coup as the Thermidorian reaction. Overnight, the victorious coup plotters became the new ruling faction within the convention. History calls them the Thermidorians. They immediately sprung into action, crushing the remaining Robespierre loyalists in the government and the army. The Thermidorians did not want a repeat of the Federalist revolts. On July 9th, they came for Napoleon. He went quietly, and within a few days was imprisoned in the Fort Carré, an old fortress in the town of Antibes, which was now being used to house political prisoners. General Bonaparte was officially under investigation for treason. Napoleon had shamelessly played the political game to advance himself. He had now learned the hard way. That was a double-edged sword. I think that's a good cliffhanger to leave you with. Next time, we'll see Napoleon navigate the new post-Robespierre political environment. Until then, thanks for listening. <laughs>